John 10, 11 through 30. What you're going to see here in these first few verses is there's three different things that Jesus is doing as this shepherd. First thing he's going to do is he's willing to give his life to die, to sacrifice. The second thing he's willing to do is he knows us. He has a relationship with us. And the third thing that you see him willing to do is he unites us. So keep those three things in the back of your mind. Willing to die, gives his life for us. The next thing, he knows us. That means he has a relationship with us. And then he unites us. So the first thing we see right there in verse 11 is, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Let's define what the word good means. Does good just mean he does a good job? If you're looking at this from a business perspective, a job perspective, he's a good worker. No, it carries something much, much deeper than that. It's the idea of good. It carries the idea of noble. It carries the idea of worthy. He is good, noble, and worthy. It's repeated four times in this chapter. There needs to be an emphasis on how good Christ is. This noble, worthy sacrifice of sins and shepherd. And he is the good shepherd. This builds on what we talked about last week. Hebrews 13, he is the great shepherd. 1 Peter 5, he is the chief shepherd. So look at the descriptions. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. And he is the good shepherd. This is the shepherd for the sheep. What do the other shepherds look like? Verse 12, but a hireling is he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So looking at the compare and contrast, you have the hired hand versus the good shepherd. What does the hired hand do? The hired hand runs when danger comes. Shepherding was a tough job back during Bible times, to say the least. If you remember the story in 1 Samuel 17, when David was getting a chance to talk to King Saul, and King Saul said, you're just a boy, you're not trained for war, you can't go out and fight Goliath. And David says, yeah, but I'm a shepherd. And what does that mean that I'm a shepherd? David said to Saul, 1 Samuel 17, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth, and when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I'm willing to bet that none of you faced a lion or a bear at work today. That you had to kill and grab it by the beard and destroy it. Shepherding was a much different type of job. In fact, in Exodus 22, one of the rules in the law was that as a shepherd, if something happened to the sheep that you had, you were responsible for it unless an animal came and got it. And then, according to Exodus 22, if it is torn to pieces by a beast then, he shall bring it as evidence And he shall not make good to what was torn. If you bring the remaining body parts to show that an animal got it. That's the shepherding job. It was a much more difficult job than what we envision. And so a hireling, verse 12, sees the wolf coming and says, Yeah, no. I'm not willing to give my life up for the sheep. I'm willing to be the shepherd when it's 70 degrees and sunny. And there's grass and water, but as soon as it's night and the wolf, I flee, I run. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the hireling is bad. If you remember correctly from last week, last week we talked about thieves and robbers. Those were evil people intending to do evil. Hirelings here just possibly mean they weren't necessarily called. They weren't necessarily committed. Listen, I know guys that have been in the ministry. They were not evil men. They were not bad men. 
They were just not committed men. And what happened was, when ministry was not what they expected it to be, they fled. There's some practical points here that Jesus is saying that they would get in that time. Now listen, I've been, I've been, I guess for lack of a better word, I don't know what the word is, lead pastor, head pastor, whatever, I don't like those terminologies, but for 21 years, I have heard every joke you can make about a pastor. But I only work on Wednesday evenings and Sunday mornings. I have heard it about how, e- I've heard everything. And I've known that people that have come to me sincerely and sincerely told me that they were going to retire from their job and then they were planning on going into the ministry because they thought that'd be a nice, easy job to retire with. That's the perspective that sometimes comes across. And I will tell you this, I think I shared with you a week or two weeks ago that I knew a pastor that was so happy to get through his first year of teaching because he had 52 messages prepared. And he said, I would never have to prepare another message again. There are some people that go into the ministry thinking it is the respect, the easy, get the money, the power, I get to run a church or whatever terminology you want to use. Jesus is saying they're hirelings. And when the going gets tough and there's not the commitment, there's not the call and the wolf comes, they will flee. Jesus says, I am not that, I am the good shepherd. Wolves will come. Paul talked about this in Acts chapter 20, speaking to the church at Ephesus, the elders at Ephesus. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. You will be attacked from the outside. You will be attacked from the inside. It's a constant battle. I remember when I first took over out here, false teaching. At the time I didn't realize that. But false teaching back then was so easy to stop. False teaching either was this book that came out that they would send you a free copy in the mail just to hope that you would read it. Or you'd get these single-spaced letters with no punctuation, just full of verses, mailed to you, just full of junk. Or somebody would have to go print off something false or make a copy of a cassette tape. Nowadays, false teaching, you just got a YouTube channel and you put it on and people will listen. It's so much easier to get false teaching out there. The wolves are out there continually. And we need to be on the guard as shepherds making sure and watching out for it. So Jesus is the good shepherd, the noble shepherd, the worthy shepherd. He's also the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. And what does he do in verse 11? He gives his life for the sheep. He gives his life. He is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Please note, it is planned and determined, his death. Jesus' death on the cross was not a reactionary event saying, now what are we going to do? His death on the cross was determined before time began. I have to make sure that point's clear. It's not God created the heavens and the earth, and then all of a sudden Adam sinned, and now God said, what's plan B? That's not the way it works. Revelation 13 verse 8. It says right here that in written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was determined from the foundation of the world that Jesus would die for our sins. Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So salvation was already determined in the sense of Christ would have to take care of our sins before the foundation of the world. God was not shocked or surprised by Adam in any way whatsoever. So this was a planned, determined thing that He said, I would come give my life. That's why he is a good shepherd. Imagine going into a job where you realize that you are going to die at that job. In fact, that is your job, is that you will give your life. And you will not, verse 12, verse 13, 
flee. So the first thing you see here about Jesus as the shepherd is he is the shepherd that's willing to give, to die, to sacrifice. What do we see next? Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I am known my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Knows, carries the idea of a relationship. We use this in present day vernacular. Do you know them? That's what we say. Oh yeah, I know them. There carries the idea of a relationship. But even in the Bible terms, no goes a little bit deeper. Some of the earlier translations, King James, New King James, will use this idea of that Adam knew his wife. Carrying the idea of oneness and intimacy right there. No carries the idea of a deeper relationship. So when it says right here, I am known, excuse me, and I know my sheep and am known by my own, that's not a casual relationship. Oh, well, yeah, I know Jesus. Every now and then I run into somebody like that where that's how they describe the relationship with Christ. Oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah, I went to school with him type of idea. Now, wait a second. He is the creator of the universe. He's the savior of your life. It is much deeper than saying, oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. It carries the idea of love. And to show the connection there, look at 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own as the Father knows me. Even so, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So look at the connection there between the Father and the Son, the idea of knowing each other, but then jump down to 17. Therefore, my Father loves me. So it's not only that the Father and Jesus know each other, but they love each other. So no carries the idea of relationship and love. And as we have mentioned many times here recently, it's not so much of whether you know God, does God know you? That's what it says in Galatians. Does God know you? Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. This is, this is the question we've got to ask. As we, we just can't go to church anymore. Because it's not about that. It's, do you know the Father? Does the Father know you? Is there a relationship between you and God? And there's such a danger in just saying, oh, so-and-so is right with the Lord. Why? Because, well, they go to church or they do this. No. Is there an actual relationship where they know the shepherd and they are a sheep following that shepherd? That's the relationship we're talking about here is the idea of knowing. Four times in verses 14 through 15, the word know or knowns is there to stress the idea of relationship. And what else does the shepherd do? Verse 16. And the other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the uniting of the other sheep. We are the other sheep. This is the Gentiles coming in and having a salvation relationship with Jesus Christ as well. That the gospel goes to the Gentiles as well as it goes to the Jews. So what does this shepherd do? He is the good shepherd that one dies, sacrifices, gives his life. Number two, he knows us. There's a relationship, a love relationship. And then number three, he unites us together in one body and one flock. That's what the good shepherd does in verses 11 through 16. That's what makes Christ the good shepherd, the noble shepherd, the worthy shepherd, which adds to his titles of great shepherd and chief shepherd as well. Let's pause here real quick to make sure we grasp this before we go on to the other stuff. Any quick questions here? Ryan. Uh, you uh, the other day, I was just browsing the internet, and I saw the verse um, that, you know, there's no difference between male and female, Jew or Greek, uh, uh, free or slave. And someone says, see, this justifies transgender. It's like, how can I possibly get that? 
I read um, what uh, Ryan was just saying. That I keep forgetting. People remind me all the time. Repeat what the people say because uh, they can't hear it out there. Ryan was just saying about taking a verse out of context there about there's neither male nor female and, and supporting transgenderism. I was on a uh, marriage website recently and just trying to you know do some studying for this message prep. And the guy was saying some really good stuff on marriage. It was really solid and biblical. And I got down to the end of it, and then I found out that he's in favor of uh, polygamy. He says, yeah, it's a biblical concept. Here's the verses. It's like, oh, okay, we just took a hard left turn right there. And that's how quickly this stuff can just sneak in. It's like, here's really good, solid, how to be a husband, how to be a wife. Then all of a sudden, let's end with, oh, yeah, and David had multiple wives, so it's okay. It's just, it sneaks in so subtly, just as we read there in Acts. It's either a wolf coming from the outside or it even rises up from the inside. It comes in from the inside. False teaching is so prevalent, and that's why one of the signs of end times is knowing and understanding the Bible and being able to separate false teaching. I'm telling you right now, over the last 18 months, I have seen so many people that, that, I, that I've known for a long time get sucked into false ideas and teachings here under the umbrella and disguise of Bible. And what happens is these people they're listening to are just taking some verses here and there or some concepts from the Bible and they're making supposed truth out of it. And it's like there is no context to what they're saying and it does not line up with Scripture. It's a very, very dangerous time right now to be out there and say, oh, this guy's a Christian. Look at what he says. Is it backed up biblically? Is it in context? Be a Brian. Check it out. Make sure it's lining up. And that goes for anything that's preached at this pulpit as well, too. We've got to make sure it's solid. Solid stuff out there. It's dangerous out there. We also have anything here about the good shepherd before we go on. Okay. 17. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. This is an important passage here. There's a lot of times where the subject of the Trinity comes up and you'll run into some false teachings about the Trinity where people say it's not in there. And you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. It's one of those theological terms that's there to describe something that's a much more complicated idea. But what you do is you see passages like this. Okay, what is Jesus saying here in 17 and 18? Okay, I lay down my life, 17, that I may take it again. Jesus says, I'm giving up my life and I get to take it again. 18, no one takes it from me. I lay it down. And I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. So here's a great question to ask. Who raised Jesus from the dead? That's a legitimate question. Well, according to John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Pretty straightforward there. But this is where it gets more fascinating. Because as you study the Bible, you realize, wait, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, in Ephesians 1, verse 20, it says, When he, meaning God the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Okay, so Jesus is claiming in John 10, 17 and 18, that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians 1, 20 says, No, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And then to even add to this, Romans 1, verse 4 That he, meaning Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So it's the power of the Spirit that raised him from the dead in Romans 1.4. And then even more clear in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So in Ephesians, excuse me, 1 Peter 3.18, the Spirit is claiming to bring Jesus from the dead. See, that's one of those teachings on the Trinity right there. God the Father says, I raised him from the dead. Jesus says, I raised him from the dead. And the Spirit says, I raised him from the dead. Because they're all God. 
And that you see right there, all three coming together. And so if you ever get into a conversation with somebody and they truly do want to talk about it, not just debate it, because the reality is sometimes people show up at your door and they don't really want to talk. They really just want to debate. If they are really interested in saying, what is the scriptural proof for this concept of the Trinity? Here's a great example of where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all make claims in different verses to say it was them that raised Christ from the dead because they're three as one. And I think it's some important points to be made there that we just need to look for as we go through this. Also in John ten eighteen, no one takes it from me. But I have laid it down of myself, and I have the power to lay it down again, and I have power to take it again, this command I received from my Father. Jesus was not like blindsided by this. If you read through the Gospels, it's abundantly clear. He knew his death was coming, his death was planned, his death was determined. And the Bible says he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem to go through this. Before the foundation of the world, this was planned. Even when it was happening, Jesus understood that this was the planned purpose. In Luke 22, when he's being arrested, he says, When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. Kind of paraphrasing here, he says, Hey, you guys got an hour where it looks like you won. This is your hour because he knows this is coming. And he says even clearer to to Pilate in John 19, Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. The only power you have, Pilate, is because you have been given this power from God to let this happen. See, it was all planned. The good shepherd knew and planned and predetermined that his life was going to be given. Going into the job, knowing the job was going to take his life. 19, therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, this is where sometimes we lose track of time in the Bible. 22, now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple on Solomon's porch. I believe when we first started our study in John, I may have mentioned this, I'm going to repeat it again. If you'd like to take notes in your Bible, make a note of the different feasts when you go through the Gospels. Those feasts are given to you as a time marker to let you know. So, right here in 22, we have Hanukkah, Feast of Dedication. Now, what was our, one of our last markers? Back in John 7, it was the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. So, we're getting a time frame here now of what's going on. So, Tabernacles started back in 7. Tabernacles kind of carries the idea of 7, 8, 9, and, and chunk of 10. Tabernacles is in the fall. Now, we're into Hanukkah. So, we're into the month of Kislev, which is our December. So if you make a little mark right here, you can keep track of time frames as it's going in the Bible. So Hanukkah is in the Bible. It's kind of one of those fun feasts to talk about. The interesting thing about Hanukkah is, Feast of Dedication, it is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It is not one of the the major feasts in the Old Testament. Major feasts in the Old Testament, you have Passover, you have Pentecost, you have the Feast of Tabernacles, and you have some other ones in there, but those are the big three that any able-bodied Jewish man was supposed to go to the temple and be a part of. But here we have Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah at this time, for Christ, had only been around about 200 years. It started back in the 160s BC, and I'm just going to give you a tiny little history lesson here on Hanukkah. What happened was, there was these rulers over Jerusalem at the time, and if you look at a map, Israel is right in this path of world powers. 
You have Egypt, you had Assyria at one time, you had Babylon, you had the Greeks, you had the Romans, and everybody crosses over Egypt to get from point A to point B. And Egypt was constantly, excuse me, Israel was constantly being taken over. So at this time, they were being ruled by this man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And what happened was he went into the temple and he completely desecrated the temple, set up a false pagan altar, and just completely desecrated the temple. Well, the Jews revolted against his leadership. This is the Maccabean revolt. And so they revolted and they retook the temple and they restarted the temple in the month of Kislev. That is our basically our December. And if you remember your Old Testament, you have to have so much oil. You have to light the uh, menorah in the inner temple there. And so what happened was they only found a limited supply of oil that they could use. And the oil is not allowed to go out. And so it was a miracle that this oil lasted eight days. That's the Feast of Dedication. They were rededicating the temple. That's why it's also known as the Festival of Lights, because they were relighting the menorah, and this is what's going on, and this is Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. So, is it in the Old Testament? It's not in the Old Testament, but there is a reference to it right here in uh, John 10, 22. You also see and note that it was in winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. That's just a nice little detail there. A lot of the times when Jesus is teaching, he's teaching in the open area. Well, he's in the temple, Solomon's porch. If you look at this in Solomon's porch, what's he doing? He's out of the wind. He's out of the weather. I mean, if I would come to you guys tonight on a very nice evening like this and say, hey guys, let's go outside and enjoy God's creation. Some of you kind of may mumble and complain about it, but you would say, yeah, yeah it's a nice evening. Now, January, and I say, let's go outside and enjoy God's creation. And you're like, no, we're going to stay in Solomon's porch. That's exactly what they were doing. It was cold. It's winter. So they were kind of more inside. So anyways, John 10, 22, 23. As you're reading through the Bible, I just want to encourage you, look for those little cues. Look for those little words. I truly do believe every word, every verse carries an importance. You know, Jesus said every jot and every tittle. There is something in there. So as I'm reading through and I see 22 and 23, it's like, okay, you gave me those details for a reason. It sets the time, it sets the location on what's going on. 24, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Just say it, Jesus. Just come right out and say, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Anointed One. You are the Savior. You are God. Then look at this answer he gives. 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. I look at that like, okay, Jesus, just say yes. He does later on in his trial, when the priests are uh, basically attacking him. But right here, why doesn't he just say it? Because I think if you jump down to 31, and then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, they're not asking him, To know for clarity's sake so they can believe and worship. They're looking for evidence to kill him. The question in 24 is not to say, tell us plainly so that way we can worship you. Tell us plainly in front of all these witnesses so that way we can now have the right to kill you and stone you. Jesus was very discerning of what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and even if to say it at all. You know, when Jesus goes before Herod at his trial, the Bible says that he said nothing. Herod's heart was not open. If you remember correctly in this trial with Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? It's a great question. Jesus' answer? Didn't even answer him. Was Pilate really looking for truth? Doesn't look like it. Pilate walked away. 
Knowing what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and even if to say it at all, we can learn from Jesus. Sometimes the best answer is no answer. And to be quite honest, sometimes the best answer is not the most direct answer. Here he says right here, I have told you and you do not believe. When has he told them? Well, context 25. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. If you go back to John chapter 5, you don't need to turn there. He says this threefold witness. My works clarify who I am. John the Baptist clarified who I am. And God the Father clarified who I am. But in John 5.36, he says this. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father sent me. My works, what I'm doing right here, right now, show you I am the Messiah. If you remember correctly, when John the Baptist was arrested and was in prison, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus and said, Are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus' answer in Luke 7 was this. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, "You Are you the coming one or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, here's his answer, Go and tell John the things which you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of the gospel preach to them. My works show you who I am. And that's what he says in 25, my works. But the issue is 26, you do not believe. Because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. You're not part of the flock. So since you're not part of the flock, you will not grasp, understand, or get it. This is a real line in the sand. The sheep get it. The sheep understand. 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now before we dig into 27, we'll pause here real quick to make sure we're all on the same page. Everybody good so far? Okay. 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Three things going on in that verse. First one, I know them. We've already covered that. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow. That's what I want us to focus on. Hear and follow. We've already covered no. What's it mean to hear and follow? This is what separates believers from non-believers. This is what separates true Christians from false converts. It's obedience. It's being willing to listen. It's being willing to follow. Jesus tells us in 27, sheep follow. They hear the voice. So what's it mean to follow the Lord and have obedience? Can we go to Luke 8, please? This is not an exhaustive teaching in any way whatsoever on the idea of obedience and following. That is a teaching in and of itself. This is a little bit of a skim the surface of it. In Luke 8, you have Luke's account of the parable of the sower and the seed, which is arguably the most important parable of all parables. If you can grasp the parable of the sower and the seed, it answers so many questions. I love the parable of the sower and the seed because when I run into somebody, I can take the parable of the sower and the seed and I can say, where do they fall in this parable? Did the gospel get presented to them and the gospel was snatched away from them by the enemy? Did they sprout up quickly and then fall away? Did they plant themselves but bring no fruit to maturity? Or are they producing good fruit and good ground and solid ground? I mean, that's, that's the parable of the sower. We are all one of those plants in the parable of the sower and the seed. And which one are we? But the one I want us to focus on 
is the idea here, verses 4 through 8, we've already covered there. You sow seed, one goes by the wayside, it's trampled, the birds take it, some fall on the rocks, breaks up quickly. Thorns, verse 7, verse 8, good ground. Okay, but now let's break it down, verse 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in times of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word, with a noble and good heart, keep it, and bear fruit with patience. Now I want you to look at really verse 15. They hear the word, with a noble and good heart, And they keep it. Keep it. That's the key word. They hear it and then they keep it. You know, Jesus, when talking about his followers, and John, excuse me, Luke 11, he says this. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Hear and keep. Jesus is saying in John, hear and follow. Same concept. Hearing it and keeping it. Hearing it and following it. So a great little litmus test for you. If you're one of the people saying, how do I know I'm saved? Are you hearing the word of the Lord? And are you keeping the word of the Lord? Are you following it? That's what Christ said. That's how straightforward it is. Can you go with me to John 14, please? John 14. The idea of obedience. As we've said out here many times before, we are saved by what we believe, not how we behave. But how we behave is changed by what we believe. So we are saved by grace and grace alone. It is not a work in any way whatsoever. And we could stress that. I mean, that's just Romans right there. But then there's also James that then teaches us once we are born again and saved, there is a change in how we live and act. That is hearing and then following. What we're talking about is the idea of obedience. Obedience. I just want to share with you a couple quotes here that I've collected over the years on obedience. First one's by Tozer. Our Lord, our Lord told his disciples that love and obedience were organically united. And that keeping of his sayings would prove that we loved him. And the failure or refusal to keep them would prove that we did not. This is the true test of love. And we would be wise to face up to it. The commandments of Christ occupy in the New Testament a place of importance that they do not have in current evangelical thought. The idea that our relation to Christ is revealed by our attitude to his commandments is now considered legalistic. That's the deal. See, if you teach anything like that, it comes across as legalistic. But the plain words of our Lord are rejected outright. These are the plain words of the Lord. I don't think we're taking anything out of context here. If you hear my voice, follow my voice. If you hear my words, keep my words. That's not taking anything out of the context. That's not being legalistic. That's the plain words of Jesus Christ. Chuck Swindoll says this. If you know what God wants you to do, obedience isn't complicated. It may be difficult... But it's not complicated. Don't wait any longer for all the details to be worked out. The Lord has given you an opportunity to grow in faith. He wants you to trust in His faithful care and rest in His unfaltering power. The time to obey has come. Now go. How simple is that? Obedience isn't complicated. 
Really what it comes down to is, as a Christian, we either have obedience or we have excuses. There is no other option. We're either obedient to what he's called us to do, or we're really just making excuses. Oh, and we have heard excuses, have we not? I I remember years ago, there was a guy that uh, felt called to be in the ministry. And he he would come up regularly, and he really felt that he was supposed to be a pastor. And so there's some pretty powerful passages in the Bible about what it means to be a pastor and have your house in order. And this man's house was not in order, and we would very lovingly tell him. So he finally came back and told us the conclusion was this. He was called to be a pastor. He was called to be in the ministry. His wife was the problem, so therefore get rid of the wife. No, that's not how it works. That is using the wife as an excuse. And how often have you, and I've heard this over the years, that what keeps person from going deeper in the Lord, the excuse of something or somebody else. It's either obedience or an excuse. Are we called to be obedient? And what I have noticed is this. When somebody clearly knows what the Lord has told them to do, and it's not complicated, and they're not willing to be obedient... It brings such a discouragement and despondency upon their life because they know they are wrong. Spurgeon says this, Often depression of spirit and great misery of soul are removed as soon as we quit our idols and bow ourselves in obedience before the living God. Obedience brings joy. Jesus said in John, I think it was John 17, that I am blessed in joy if I keep his words. I can give you example after example of time where I did not want to be obedient to something the Lord had called me to do. And by not doing it, I thought I would have more peace. And I was miserable. And then I would go do it and realize more joy came out of doing the difficult obedience than not doing it. It is always better to obey. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. I don't know what the Lord has laid on your heart tonight with this teaching, but if there's something God has laid on your heart and you hear his voice and he's telling you to do it, the only thing I can tell you is be obedient and follow. John 14 says this, starting verse 21 with me. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself. Look at our idea there. Keeps my commandments. Keep moving on. 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. That is just as as, uh, Tozer said. That's the plain teaching of Jesus. Obedience is keeping his words. It is not complicated. It's not difficult to know it. The difficulty is in the follow through. But this is what it means to hear his voice and then follow his voice. We've got to pick up the pace here because I want to make sure we get 28 and 29 done tonight. Can you go with me back to John 10? And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. I and my father are one. We will get into next week because obviously that statement, I and my father are one, creates quite the uproar. 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So Jesus makes it very clear in John 17, his great priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. He looked at oneness with his father. We'll get to that next week. But 28 and 29, The good shepherd has come to give us eternal life. We will not perish, and no one can snatch us out of his hand. Can you imagine salvation being something that 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 is that flimsy? That we could be saved, but anybody, anytime could come snatch us out of salvation of the Father's hand. 
Ah, oh, that is what I'm so thankful there for the idea of 28 of the wording. Eternal life that we shall never perish. 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I highly encourage you to go to John 15 and just really read the beginning of John 15, the first eight verses, and focus on the word abide. Your translations may say remain. I had a professor tell me one time to really focus on words, and when you see them, repeat it. And that was great advice. Understand what it means to abide in Christ, to remain in Him. And you will then start to be able to tie in 28 and 29. No one can snatch them out of the hand. No one can. My Father is greater than all. And what a blessing that is when we abide in Christ, that we have the eternal life. 28, that He said, we will never perish. So thankful I don't have to worry about somebody snatching me out of my father's hands. What a blessing that is. I mean, I think about this as a parent. I was just going somewhere today with the kids, and I took the girls. And I had one girl in one hand and one girl in the other hand. We were crossing the street. No one is going to snatch those girls out of my hand. I got them. I'm the father. I'm the dad. I got their hands. No one's going to snatch them out. That's the promise that Jesus just gave us there in 28 and 29. What a wonderful promise that is. All right. So we need to call it here, though. So we will pick it up again next week in 30. I and my father are one, which takes us right into 31. But any final questions, comments about anything here? John. about where Jesus said the day and the hour only the Father knows and the Son does not know? Yeah. That the verse you're talking about? Yeah. yeah, and you want to know how that works into the Trinity? About just the idea of them, the connection together? Gotcha, gotcha. Ryan. Uh, just that brief mention of Hanukkah in verse 22. It's the only place to mention in the Bible. Uh, right. If you go back to uh, Daniel 11, it gives kind of a future uh, prophecy of uh, some uh, the descendants of Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. And there's kind of a history of the king of the north, king of the south, and it kind of plays into Antiochus IV. And then eventually, at the end of the chapter, it could be a dual, dual, dual prophecy referring to the Antichrist. So it's, it was prophesied several hundred years ahead of time. Yep. And what uh, Ryan was referencing is the great chapter of Daniel chapter 11. And Daniel chapter 11, I believe, is one of the meatiest chapters in the entire Bible. It is just full of, I mean, I don't know if there's a better prophetic chapter in the Bible than Daniel chapter 11. And like Ryan was saying there, as you read through Daniel 11, it is easy to see prophetically the idea of the possible Maccabean revolution going on there. And it's actually Daniel 11. Um, I believe it's 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And I believe that's the reference that a lot of people use there because um, it goes in the context of what we're saying there. So that could be in Daniel 11:32 a reference there to the Maccabean revolution that's going on there for Hanukkah. Yes, yeah, surely. by the water and goes by a boat and 
follow me, and they hop out of the boat and start following them. And then he goes to and they're in the boat with their father fishing, and he says, follow me, and they jump out of the boat, and there they meet the father. And I was reading that this morning, and I thought, yeah, look what the dad felt when he hopped out of the boat and just left him there. Um, yeah, they would in that sense of knowing Jesus' voice. The thing is, when we when we study that, were you reading that in Mark? Uh, yeah. Mark, yeah. No, Matthew. Matthew, okay. John gives us a little bit more background in that, where they had already heard Jesus and knew Jesus before that. Because because if you go in the context of that, I agree with you, it sounds like Jesus just walks up to two guys and says, hey, follow me. Oh, okay. And we just go. But they, they had already been around him, been around some of his teachings, and it looks like what's happening at that point is that's where Jesus is saying, it's time for you guys to make the full commitment to following me at that point right there. Because, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. If you just read it in Matthew or Mark, it almost just makes it sound like that's the first interaction they had with each other. But John shows us that there were some interactions with them beforehand as well, too. And that's where it goes back to all four of the Gospels. I, and I know it sounds overwhelming, guys. I really know it does. But if we can take all four of the Gospels and start piecing them together, you start to see the full picture. And it's, and it's, it's, it's hard. I, I realize that. But the depth that comes out of it is just, is just wonderful. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Good questions and good comments. Hey, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for just the time to be here. Let us hear your voice. Let us follow your voice. Let us be obedient, Lord. Not because we have to for salvation, but because we want to out of love. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, and let us love you in your name. Amen. All righty. In way of announcements, uh, a couple things here. They're going on. Just want to let everybody know about. Uh, back to School Bash coming up August 29th. More details to come. Tony will do a great job with that to uh, get the kids started off in the school year in the right way with the Lord's focus there. Dawn started up, my wife Dawn started up a daily Bible reading plan. Not too late to join up with that if you want. Phone number's here. She's also in the back here tonight. You can talk to her. Ladies, if you're looking after that, get signed up. And also know we are got these small groups going on throughout the week. We've got three men's studies going on throughout the week. Um, we have one online, one here in Hamler, one in Deschler. And then we also have three ladies' studies that go on as well. At the one on Monday starting up again in August and the one on Friday starting up on August 6th. So we have a lot of different opportunities there for you to get involved with that. Prayerfully consider getting involved. Hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. And we'll catch you guys next week then. Take care.